You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Colonel Leonard D. Franchi Shi. From here on, I'll call him Colonel D. just to help me out. Colonel D. is the retired Marine Corps officer who served 32 years in the Marine Corps. Important to the show is in 2004, he served as a civil affairs detachment commander for Regimental Combat Team 1 during the Second Battle of Fallujah. Colonel D., welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, sir. We always start off kind of general with background information about the topic, it's really civil affairs and urban combat. But if you don't mind, sir, could we start with providing the listeners with a little background to your military background or experience? Absolutely. So uh, I started as an infantry officer, went to the basic school in 1988, infantry officer school, and I served in active duty infantry officer for my first tour with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, spent about eight years or so in the infantry, then both on active and in reserves. Then I went to uh, actually motor transport because that was the unit that was close to me. Uh, Actually, I really enjoyed that. It was a great unit, great Marines. I learned a lot about support. And then I went to civil affairs. We were not trained as Marines in the basic school. Didn't know about civil affairs until I went to a staff training course and CEO of Fort Civil Affairs Group, one of the two at the time, Marine Corps Civil Affairs units in the Marine Corps. The commanding officer was there. He talked about civil affairs. He had some great operational opportunities at the time in the Balkans, and he was asking if anybody was interested, and I kind of tucked that away. Great. He seemed like a real great guy, real smart. And not until 911 happened did I pursue civil affairs, and I called the unit, and I said, I'm interested. At the time, it was a Colonel McKinley, who was a CEO, and he, he said, to me. He goes, I interview everybody and I'll size you up in five minutes. So I was like, okay, let's go. And he says he only does it in person. So I had to fly in. I was living in Florida at the time. I had to fly in. To the, he met me at the airport. I did an interview at Civil Affairs. Didn't even leave the airport. I, uh, he met me at a coffee shop and then I got right back on an airplane, flew home. A couple of days later, uh, I think it wasn't anything that I said, but he needed officers, so he brought me on board. Training for us at the time was there was no CA school in the Marine Corps. We relied heavily on the Army, and so we had to do this box of books. There was all done through the Army. It was like a correspondence course. We had six modules related to civil affairs and the rest were other stuff. So that's how we got our training for civil affairs. So that's a little bit about my background and how I got into civil affairs. Yes, sir. That's pretty fascinating. And we're really honored to have you on the show. And I think we're going to have a great conversation as I study the breadth and depth of urban operations and how important civil affairs is to that or civilian military operations. But I think for the listeners, what is civil affairs when we say that and kind of what's the purpose of it? So, you know, for me, and I think this is important to say about the Marines, because from my perspective, I always viewed Marines in a lot of respects as being an outfit that's oriented to winning battles. So I view because of the contract of the Marine Corps and and a lot of what we do is as a tactical operations. So the way I view civil affairs is we have to ensure that the commander is considering the civil domain in operations. So we have to bring that to his attention and ensure that he's making considerations in the operations in our mission to make sure that he's considering that and it's considered for the operation. So that's how I always viewed civil affairs. So just for the listeners, when, when you say civil, we mean civilians. Civilians, right. And civilians and also the, the civil infrastructure, anything to do with civilian aspect of the battlefield. 
for me is I, you know, I struggle sometimes with definitions and understanding urban versus rural and city versus village. From my own mind, if I say civil, I mean civilization. So an urban area with a population and the people and infrastructure that support that social organism. Would that be about right? Yes. And I would say too, though, just to, to add to that, we're also talking about the host nation and any civilian partners that may also getting involved with the operations that are going on. So I don't want to just limit it to the civilians that are on the battlefield itself or in the country. There's civil aspects that go across the spectrum. So it's bigger than just, let's say, the civilians right in, in the operation itself. No, that's fascinating and a great point. So I know you said you didn't get training, but I don't know if you, you could project to civil affairs development in the Marine Corps today. I, I believe there's a difference between civil affairs officers and enlisted soldiers. I think they're like the Army, there's two different. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So I'll talk a little bit about more about the training. I just hit the wave top there when I was giving my intro. So I what happened was after I joined the unit and we did the box of books, we had a lot of in-house training. And I was kicked out pretty early on to a mission in Nicaragua. And it was a humanitarian civic assistance mission. We worked hand in hand and actually in support of the 96th Army CA Battalion. So these were active duty Army soldiers. And I would say my real training came with those guys. They really mentored me a lot. And, and I have hats off to them. And also I joined the Civil Affairs Association early on. I didn't even know what it was until our CO said, you have to join the CA Association. I said, OK, that's what you say, sir. And I'm glad I did because I, I met a lot of people and learned a lot from senior CA officers from the CA Association who, who mentored me and told me a lot about what we do and how we do it. And also the connections I made there were connections that were beneficial to me downrange because it's a relatively small community and you meet these people over and over again. But those guys at the 96 were very helpful to me, shaped me a lot. It was a great operation. It was permissive. So I had a lot of opportunities to engage the local population without a lot of high mission profile with a lot of security. We, we had security, of course, but not to the extent we had at Fallujah. So I got a lot of experience in actually interacting with the local population. So that helped. Now, as far as the training goes today, so what we didn't have a CA school at that time in the Marine Corps. Now we do. And it's very well done that we have some very experienced people that are instructors at the school and they have a highly developed curriculum and they do a great job. So we're worlds away from where we were when when I first started. And I think that the Marines coming through that are pretty much ready to hit the ground running. So we're in a much better state. That's great to hear. Would you say in, in the training, let's say today's training, urban environments are a part of the curriculum? Like you said, civil affairs spans much more than very specific environments or very specific operations, but I'm sure the curriculum covers the breadth. It does. And when I was really heavily engaged, I, I ended up becoming the commanding officer of Fourth Civil Affairs Group and Second Civil Affairs Group. And I had pretty much every position within the CA units through the years. And while I was there, our main focus was definitely COIN because that's what we were heavily involved with. So a lot of this, the training was related to that. But now they have pivoted. They realize that urban type environments are much more important. And some of the lessons learned we had in Fallujah, of course, were key to helping shape that. But I can't tell you that I know for sure exactly how much time the CA school is spending on urban environments themselves. 
No problem, sir. So I have a lot of other questions, especially like how do civil affairs get worked into planning for large-scale combat operations, offense, defense, and stability. But I know a lot of that's just going to be hard to answer without putting context to it. So I don't know if you would mind to jump right into probably the one of the biggest urban battles of recent history. And, and we've done some work on it, but definitely never had the insight of the civil affairs other than a couple comments about the trying to get as many non-combatants and civilians out of the battle zone as possible. So I'll have questions. I think I'd, I'd just like to turn it over to you to talk about that. Your time before, during, and after the Second Battle of Fallujah. Sure. And I think some of your questions will be answered in more detail about the training and urban environments during this discussion. Let's go through the battle. So in 2003, during the march to Baghdad, Fort Civil Affairs Group was mobilized and they did participate in that. I was not, I was actually with the 2-6 MU and we were in Mosul area, uh, supporting the Joint Special Operations Force North in that area, Green Berets. So when we got back, we had about basically third and fourth civil affairs group. There's only two civil affairs group. They both mobilized. Third civil affairs group got mobilized pretty quick again, right when we got back in 2003. And they went back to Iraq and they were there for the first incursion into Fallujah. And then the fourth civil affairs group, we got mobilized and relieved third civil affairs group about seven months later. So we got there in about August of 2004. So this, the first incursion into Fallujah had already occurred. That happened in April. So I'll just tell you a little bit about Fallujah, the general situation, and, and that's when we came in. It was right around August of 2004. So Fallujah is about, uh, and this is really my understanding of Fallujah, the way it was briefed to me, the way I remembered it. If you ask somebody else, they may have a different view on it, but this is how I saw it and during my R and out mission analysis and net assessment of the place. But at Fallujah, the general situation was basically a city of 300,000 smack in the middle of the Sunni Triangle. It's about 60 kilometers west of Baghdad in Al-Ambar province. It was known as the city of mosques because there was about 80 mosques in total in an area that the sea itself was a 16 kilometers. The Fulgians were very proud of its staunch honor codes and conservative social conformity. Historically, they were restive people. The situation, it was a main area of support for Saddam Hussein, the great benefactor of his patronage. Really, all of Alam or province was. It was largely unaffected by the ground war. So during the march to Baghdad and when the, and the Marines and the army race to Baghdad to, to topple the Saddam's regime. Fallujah really wasn't impacted all that much, but later it became a symbol for resistance and increasingly problematic for, for the Iraq campaign, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what I would say is Fallujah, in, in the time period we're talking about, 2004-2005, Fallujah was basically a center of gravity for the insurgency, whereas Baghdad was the center of gravity for the coalition, because that's where the main government was, and that was the so Fallujah was just kind of something that we considered an area that we had to isolate to get to settle down Baghdad itself. So the Sunni Triangle, of course, you got Tikrit on one end, Baghdad on the other, and Ramadi on the other leg of that triangle. And Tikrit, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is the home of Saddam Hussein. It's important to remember when you talk about Fallujah, too, there's Fallujah, the city, with the 16 square kilometers right on the Euphrates River. It's right at a bend of the Euphrates River. And then there's Camp Fallujah, which was different. That was the actual base where the Marines operated from or the coalition operated from. But that was probably about two or three kilometers from the city itself. 
So there's you have to distinguish between the two. When we got there, that nobody went into Fallujah. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But a little bit to the east of us was Abu Ghraib prison. Of course, it was famous in the early 2004 time period, stuff that happened there, the abuses that happened there. And then you had Baghdad. The Marines, in April 2003, the 82nd Airborne arrived in Fallujah. And just a few days after their arrival, I think it was like 23rd of April, they arrived in Fallujah. 28th of April, there was a demonstration in Fallujah. I think the the people in Fallujah, initially, they welcomed as kind of liberators. But then the people in Fallujah realized that we were here to stay. I think they had a different view. And there was a an incident that happened. Demonstrators, it was a who shot first scenario, but some demonstrators were killed. And then the, the whole atmospherics in Fallujah changed. The Marines came in. So the Army was there, the 82nd Airborne. The Marines came in in, in March of 04 took over the Fallujah from the 82nd Airborne. General Mattis was the division commander. He basically said, hey, you know, new sheriff in town. We're going to, I want to engage the people. I want to bring stabilization to the area, bring projects and and rehabilitate the city, do what we can to help. However, quickly after he got there, he came into the city, tried to meet with some of the local officials. He became under fire and there was a lot of resistance. Shortly after that, in March of 04, four contractors from the Blackwater took a wrong turn, drove through the city, and basically were murdered on the streets of Fallujah. And they were placed on the Green Bridge. Basically, general masses were, were going to go in, and that was the first incursion to Fallujah. We're going to go in there. we got to stabilize this place, and we got to get the bodies back. So he went in there. There was an operation ongoing. And during that time period, basically, there was a ex-Bath Party general who came up with this idea that we're going to have a political solution to the problem. We're going to form the Fallujah Brigade full of ex-military people from the Iraqi military. You know, we'll take back the city. I don't think General Mattis, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think he agreed with that plan. But it was basically decided by Al-Awawi that that's what the solution was going to be. It was going to be an Iraqi solution to an Iraqi problem. This general was basically given a force to go in there, the Fallujah Brigade, and they went in. And basically, as soon as they went in the city, they became complicit with the uh, insurgency in there. So we basically, unfortunately, I think we provided some arms to the people in the city during that time period from the Fallujah Brigade. So that's the set of the situation from when I showed up in my unit. So we got there and there was a switch out of RCT-1 was still there. So we had, uh, when I got there, Colonel Tulin was the regimental commander, a great guy, real, real war fighter. I really enjoyed working with him. He really understood the situation. It was a great pleasure, really integrated us quickly into the staff. But they were there for a year. So when we switched out with 3rd CAG, the regiment was still there, the headquarters itself, but the battalions were switching out. So Colonel Tulin was there for, for a while, and then we had a new regimental commander, and he uh, he was there for about eight hours, I think. And then our headquarters took a rocket and he got injured and he had to be evacuated out. And we switched out with Colonel Shupp, who ended up being the regimental commander during the, he was supposed to take over, I think, 5th Marines, but he took over 1st Marines because of the regimental commander who got injured. So it was basically at the time from August to November, the second battle actually kicked off, was basically a containment. We were trying to contain Fallujah. There was a lot of Bad things happening in there. It was the center of planning insurgent activities. It was the hospitals were in there. They were treating insurgents that were injured. And it was basically a symbol of resistance. And they felt because of the the way April campaign went down that General Mattis basically had a, and the division had a basically ceasefire, let the Fallujah Brigade 
go in there. They basically felt like they beat the Marines. So they were very overconfident on their abilities. The enemy itself, it was we characterize it as kind of four elements. There was a disenfranchised, the Sunni, most to lose from the fall of Saddam, the anti-occupation forces. There was freedom, foreign regime elements. These are former Ba'ath Party members, ex-military officers. Then there was the extremists that came in from other areas. These are not Fallujians. They are from other places that came in to take part. And they were just criminals. You know, when you have an unstable environment, uh, criminals can really benefit from that. So there was a bunch of them too. As far as the leadership on the insurgent side, you had Zarqawi, who was the head of Al-Qaeda, was there. You had a sheikh by the name of Abdullah Janabi, who was a leading cleric. He was a firebrand cleric. And then you had this uh, Omar Hadid, who was a local guy who was from that area, who, who was a mastermind of operations. Now, these are non-uniform, no standard equipment. They were typically operated in squat size. They were, as I mentioned, they were overconfident. They defeated the Marines in April. They were highly motivated, very crafty, and the effective use of intimidation, which they did with the civilians. And then you had civilians. There were lots of un- unemployed military-age males. Estimated city of 300,000, there was maybe 40,000 unemployed. They relied heavily on the monthly food rations as part of the national public distribution system, which is basically the oil for food program. I think there was nine staples that were provided to the people that needed it based on revenues generated at the national level from the oil. The population just wanted to live at peace. They just wanted to be able to go to the store and get groceries and feed their family and go to school. And that's what they want to do. And they were in a very difficult situation because of what was going on there. The friendly situation, at least when I first got there in Fallujah itself, was Regimental Combat Team 1, which is 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and 2nd Recon Battalion. As a detachment commander, I had teams with each of the battalions. I also had a team at Abu Ghraib Prison, two teams in general support of the regiment. And as I said, from the time I got there to the November offensive, it was basically a counterinsurgency. There was a lot of harassment a lot of from the enemy a lot of we're taking a lot of mortar rounds daily especially they they seem to zero in on our headquarters our job was to isolate the city which we did a very good job at and when i say we i mean the battalions that were doing this i mean we were just supporting the battalions and they were doing the heavy lifting so i want want to make that clear i give them all the credit but the uh isolating the city and basically working closely with the local towns that were around the city itself that were suburbs, so to speak, Sakalawiya, Abu Ghraib, and a bunch of other smaller cities in the area, Nasr Aswan, Karma, or some of the other places. We were trying to establish local control, in other words, make sure that the population was properly cared for. As time went on, a lot of people were leaving the city of Fallujah itself and going to these neighboring towns. And so we had a dislocated person issue, so which is squarely in the CA realm. And that, a lot of them ended up in the schools. So the schools basically stopped functioning in the, in the education sense, and they were used as homes and places for the dislocated people who were basically camping out in the schools themselves. The civil affairs, we set up a, what was called the Fluja Liaison. It was a CMOC, Civil Military Operations Center. It was right between Camp Fallujah and the city of Fallujah. We're right outside the gate of Fallujah. So we had the window into the city itself. So during that time period before the battle actually started, we were actually had people coming into our CMOC all the time. And we would pump them for information. What's going on in the city? So we were a, a real intel collection, not just on the civilian situation, but also on the, you know, what's going on in the city and the happenings, because we were that window of into the city itself. So we had a lot of people coming in. 
telling us what, what's happening. And, and we did a lot of projects to try to help out with these in the cities, whether in the suburbs, whether it be mostly reconstruct. So, and this brings it to a point of money, using money as, as the weapon system, so to speak, which was really important. We did a lot of projects and we had a differentiation. We didn't, not as CA, want to get involved with development. In other words, building new things. What we did get involved with and used our money for that we had available to us was for reconstruction, which is basically rebuilding things that were broken during the battle. Whether we broke it, the enemy broke it, didn't matter. We wanted to get it reconstructed so that it could be used by the local population. So we did a lot of projects related to that. Uh, We also had a lot of humanitarian. We had to get a lot of humanitarian goods to the dislocated people that needed them. It was always shortages. So we had to do we could to continue the flow of goods for to take care of the people. One of the other things we did was since we we couldn't actually physically go into the city and do an assessment of the infrastructure, we had a lot of people would come in and tell us, you know, the condition and the location of the infrastructure. And you can't just point to a map and have civilians tell you where on this military map is this thing. They don't know what a military map is. So we had to be inventive and learn the street names according to the streets that they names that they use. It took us a while to build a map of the city that civilians could tell us where everything was based on the, the names of the streets that they used. And that was something that was a product that we developed before the battle started. And also the location of the key infrastructure. And all that key infrastructure, there were two parts to that. There were the nodes, the individual pieces of it, and then how the nodes work together as an infrastructure itself, as a system. And I'll give you a good example of this, which turned out to be important later during the battle itself. And that was the sewer lift stations. Fallujah was kind of below the sea level. And so to speak, kind of maybe like New Orleans, I guess, maybe a way to look at it. And so when the battle started, the city flooded because the sewer lift stations didn't work anymore. So you had these pump stations that would pump water back into the Euphrates rivers, but you had one lift station pumped into another lift station which pumped into another lift station, which actually pumped it out of, out into the Euphrates River. So you had to have all of it working to get the water actually out of the city. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that because that was an important thing. Really limiting maneuver was the flooding. So we built an understanding of the city. We also developed a lot of connections with the people. We really focused on the technocrats, so to speak. These are the people that actually administered the city and ran the city, whether it be from the electrical to hospitals, the schools, the fire department, the police department. These people that were in these elements, we kind of built a, a book, so to speak, of the people. So we knew who to get back into place once we needed to access them and we knew where to get them. During that preliminary part where we were working towards the battle, we developed that list of key infrastructure. We gave that, of course, to the regiment who then got it submitted for restrictive fire areas so that we would protect that, especially the power stations that if those got taken out, there would be a lot of problems getting the city back online. So I think the leadership understood that. They wanted to make sure that they knew what their damage they were going to cause when they if they had engaged targets there. So that was all done. That was one of the things CA did was provide the key infrastructure to the regiment. Once the uh, it was decided that, that there was going to be a battle, that we had to take down, first it was just we're going to contain it, focus on Baghdad and contain Fallujah. It became evident that we just we had to go in. So we were just a regiment at the time, and this was going to be a division operation. So they had to decide where to get the rest of the—they had to take risks. 
you know, somewhere they had to take forces from other places to assemble enough to, for a division to, to take the city. So they had to make calculated risks, take units, move them around, and bring them to Fallujah for the operation. For civil affairs, so in other places, they had to do basically economy of force while we were assembling enough forces to do an actual offensive operation in the city that with 330,000 houses, buildings that had to be cleared. So it was a division, division fight. So we were regimental combat team one, and we added regimental combat team seven. I believe the attack in April went from, if I'm not mistaken, east to west. And so in this battle, we were going to go north to south. And one of the things that we did in FLT was deception. So we initiated a bunch of contracts to set up an assembly area down south. And basically, we weren't going to occupy them, but we set them up. And obviously, the word got out and they actually oriented defenses towards the south. So that helped. That's an active role that civil affairs did to help shape the battlefield with that deception plan. So the, the battle kicked off in November, went north to south pretty much. The actual clearing, there was 35,000 houses that needed to be, or buildings I should say, that needed to be cleared. So in phase three in the assault, it was a very well-planned and well-orchestrated battle. We absolutely had the tempo, had the tempo, we gained the tempo needed to be successful. And let me just go back for the planning. We did a lot of planning. We planned and planned and planned. And we had about a month or so to plan. And we planned out just about every contingency. We had built supplies, a green mountain, we called it, of civilian supplies. And we had identified technocrats that would help as we transitioned in phase four that would jump right in and help get the infrastructure going. So we did a lot of planning. But there was one thing that as much as you plan, I'll just say this about planning, as much as you plan... You always forget something. And one of the things that we did forget was dislocated animals. I mean, we had a pretty good dislocated civilian plan where we knew what we were going to do with the civilians. We actually warned the civilians to get out of the city. We didn't say when the battle was going to start, but they knew it was going to happen. And so the civilians basically left, most of them. I think there was only a thousand left, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But dislocated animals, they were just left there. So the people left. The battle started, they just left animals. And there was all kinds of animals running around. And they actually became problematic for us. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later. But it was something I didn't consider, and it kind of surprised us. But the Marines did a great job with it, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. So 35,000 houses had to be cleared in the, some of the key areas, like Jolan area. There was probably enemy in about 1 in 15 houses, but most of the city was about 1 in 70 houses or buildings had had enemy forces. I think it was a total of 4,000 enemy. One thing that I'm really interested in was during that planning phase, that whole month, how the messaging was actually happened to remove as much of the civilian population as possible without, without giving the hand of basically when the operation would kick off. I think it's a big part of a lot of the operations we've seen is this deliberate process, everything from airdropping flyers to broadcast to key leader engagements, asking as many of the civilians to dislocate how that happened, and then where did you tell them to go? Right. I'm glad you asked that for clarification. That was done in multiple ways, and we actually had Army PSYOPs 
and information operations people that we work closely with and some Marines too that were doing it. And so it was a multi-prong approach going from what you said, leaflets. We literally went right up to the city with loudspeakers and started shouting stuff like, get out of the city or we're coming to get you. There was intimidation type stuff. And the Army guys did a great job with that. Marines, you know, of course, they were supporting that. And also whisper campaign. So in the FLT where I was at the CMOC, we actually had some meetings and we actually had meetings. General Sattler was, so when I first got there was General Conway who ended up becoming the Commandant Marine Corps and General Mattis was the division commander and General Conway was the meth commander. So in meth meaning he had the MAGTAF and I, I want to talk, I'll, I should talk about the MAGTAF and I will in a second. And then we had General Natonsky who took over the division and General Sattler who took over the meth. So General Sattler would come to the CMOC, to the FLT. And by the way, General Mattis, when we set up the FLT, it was like a little hermitage. It was like this nice the fountain. I mean, it was like a cool place to go. And General Mattis wanted it that way. He wanted it to seem inviting to people. There probably wasn't a force protection. There should have been. And I'm kind of surprised the FLT itself, we got attacked, but not as much as you would have thought because we actually were executing projects. So there was money flowing from the FLT. But we actually brought in insurgent leadership into the FLT where General Sattler met with them and said, you, be- you better knock off this nonsense or we're going to come in and we're going to take down the city. And he told him straight up. He said, I was there. And he said, you guys better knock this, this off. And by the way, so some of the, there was the Fallujah Brigade. I mean, they weren't sitting there saying, oh, we're insurgent. We're saying that didn't, they didn't say that. They would say, we're the rightful occupiers of this city. And they weren't. They weren't part of the Iraqi government. So one of the ways that we communicated is directly to the insurgent leadership. General Sattler, like I said, he said, you better knock this off. And he had Department of State people there, too, that were part of that discussion. So it wasn't just him. It wasn't just a military guy saying it. You had Department of State people, interagency people that were in that meeting that were talking to the, basically the leadership, so to speak, of Fallujah. So the whisper campaign, and there was so there's a variety of ways that we actually communicated with the, the message, and it got out pretty quick. I like to think that that assembly area had something to do with it as well and some of the other things that were done. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir. Okay. And uh, let me just mention about the MAGTAF. I mentioned about the MEF, and then there was the division, which was a ground combat element. And this gets the command and control. I would have never believed this if I didn't see it, to be honest with you. But so we were basically attached. I mean, we said we were direct support of the regiment, but we were really essentially attached, and so were our teams. So when we deployed to Iraq at this time, it was the CAG deployed as a CAG with a commander, went to Fallujah, and there were four detachments. And I happened to be the one that went to Fallujah, but there was also another one that went to Ramadi, and then one went way, way out west, and then we had one that was basically at the division level. Sir, what does CAG stand for again? Civil Affairs Group. So it's basically, the civil, I think it would be the equivalent of a battalion of Army CA. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it would be the same. So I guess our detachment would be like a company. So CAG is the, basically a civil affairs group, a unit of civil affairs Marines. So typically... You know, we were always taught as Marines, you fight as a MAGTAP, Marine Air Ground Task Force. And you had a traditional MAGTAP, you have an air aviation combat element, you have a logistical combat support element, and you have a ground combat support element, and you have a headquarters element. But in this case, we also had this CAG. So we're not part of the ground combat element. We weren't part of the aviation combat element. We weren't part of the ground support element. We were our own. So I thought 
that C2 was very not normal. And the way that we got it to work, I, I give a lot of credit to our commander who really understood the tenuous situation that that command structure presented. And he was very good about the relationship with the people. Because if I was the ground combat element, I would say, what is this? This is not traditional command structure. I was there for the operation order. Now, like I said, I wouldn't have believed it if I wasn't sitting there. General Otonsky said in phase four that the CAG is the main effort. He didn't say ground combat element is the main effort. He didn't say the aviation he said the CAG. Later, we didn't do that anymore. We didn't deploy as a CAG. We deployed as a G9. So so phase three, you know, we initiated the assault. It was, I would say, from a CA perspective, it was like a three-block war. You had clearing going on in one block, and some units may be going faster than those. You had armor units that were there, so they were moving faster maybe than the infantry. They try to keep it pretty much similar on phase lines, but there may be some successes that they were exploiting, so going faster than others. And then you would have, just on the heels of that, you, you would have humanitarian assistance going on, or you might have evacuation of civilians, and you may have Phase four going on in certain areas, certain parts of the city as, as you move through it. Now, the, the infantry assault phase, we, we cleared the buildings three times, each building three times. And I remember talking to the battalion commander, Willie Buell from 3-1. He said, don't ever go into a building without clearing it first, even after the th- we cleared it three times. And so that was probably because of some presence of underground tunnels and basically the ability for the enemy to maneuver in, into old spaces that had already been cleared. You got it. They, it was very easy. They knew the city better than we did. They were able to kind of squish around and find seams and get behind and do all that stuff. But eventually we did clear the city. I mean, we literally cleared the whole city of every single person. I think it was 4,000 enemy, about 1,500 were eliminated, 1,000 were captured, and the rest probably got away, I guess. So what we were doing at that time, we were doing immediate assessments. So we were assessing the infrastructure that was cleared and determining the damage. And for that, we had, that was a general support team. So I had teams with each of the battalion that did their thing with the battalion. And then we had, did their missions with the battalions. And then we had our two general support teams that were with the regiment and we did the assessments and we actually worked. We had some army engineers that were civil engineers that came with us. We were able to do real assessments. They were really able to do a bridge assessment, for example, and tell you the, the damage to the bridge, so to speak, and whether it could be used for vehicles or whatever. And then we had CBs who were with us too. And so it was a combination of, we had a whole CB element and there was quite a few of them. They provide a lot of expertise on civil engineering as well. So we had a really good assessment team. We did a lot of assessments. We assessed all the infrastructure that we had and we confirmed the location of each piece of, of infrastructure. And we knew the damage that had been done. So I was supporting RCT-1. There was another detachment supporting at this time during the clear phase. They were supporting RCT-7. They did their assessments, I thought was pretty clever, through UABs. They were looking at some of the damage that was done to the city through through the aerial imagery. We did these, we did physical assessments. We went through and noted all the damage. The other thing that we did was we organized the removal of dead bodies. There was a lot of them. There was a lot of damage to the city. It was in some parts catastrophic damage. So we had to do a lot of work to uh, the civil affairs. We organized getting rid of dead bodies. It started becoming a public health problem. So you had the dead bodies and then you had all these dislocated animals running around and they were mixing in with the dead bodies and it got kind of grisly. So we had to remove 
And this is the the enemy, dead bodies, when I say this, because obviously we had our own casualties. They were handled in a different way. So what we would do is we worked with the neighboring cities, those relationships we had built from Sakhalawea, Nasrawasalam, to bring in local clerics to come in with a mortuary team, so to speak. They would do proper honors to the people, the enemy that were eliminated. They took them out and it was very moving to watch them do their prayers and their ceremonies. They did that part and brought them out. And actually, there were some civilians still in the city that got trapped in the city once the battle started. And we actually coordinated armor personnel carriers to go in and take them out with armored personnel carriers to get them out. Some of these, some of the families that got trapped out of the city and some people that were stuck in hospitals, too, that we had to get them out of the hospitals. And when the battle started, the city just flooded. And this actually, so it was, think of this flooding streets water pulling up sewage out of the sewage system, just a toxic mess. And vehicles were having trouble getting through. Marines were wading in waist deep of water in certain areas. So it became an issue. There was multiple reasons for this. One of the, like I said, the sewer lift stations, which I didn't even know how all that worked until we were able to assess everything. We had some general idea, but we didn't know for sure until we were able to go into the city. And power station, you know, stopped providing power because a lot of electrical lines were knocked down and also some water lines that were broken. So the actual water pumping station, purification station was actually on the other side of the Euphrates River. So General Tonsky basically said at one point, this is one of his biggest concerns. And he was the division commander and he basically tasked civil affairs to take care of it. And you have to remember, we're Marines. We're not engineers, so to speak. We're not professional water people. We're not, we're just Marines riflemen who know a little bit about civil affairs. So this was thrown onto our lap and we had, luckily we had the CBs with us. They were hugely helpful and the army had some civil engineers that were with us. So it was a team and we utilized the connections that we had made. The first thing that we did was we went over to the water station and said, hey, turn off the water. And the municipal workers that were there basically said, we turned it off as soon as the battle started. So that's not the problem. So then he said, it's the sewer lift stations. And I said, well, tell me where they are. Looked at the map and he said, I don't know how that thing works. Never seen a map before in my life, but I know where they are. So we were able to convince some of these guys during the middle of the battle to go into the city. So, you know, it was a whole big production and they were willing to do it. These are civilian municipal workers who were willing to go into the city while the battle is going on and show us where these sewer lift stations were so we can get them running again. And so we identified them. We got the CBs to get them going again, to get them operational. We had to get some pumps. Some of them were cracked and broken, but we got some of our own pumps to get it to work. And that helped, but that wasn't the sole answer to the water problem. What ended up happening is we were traveling around doing our assessments, and we just happened to be traveling over a bridge that was down a little bit from over the Euphrates River as we were going to the water station. And I had noticed that on the Plimzel mark of the dam, the Sluicegate Dam, that was downstream, the water was really high. So I asked the dam operator, said, what's going on with that mark? It looks like the water's high. He goes, yeah, the water's high. I don't have any gas to open the, the dam. And so I called the, the regimental commander. I said, I need some gas over here for the generator so we can open the dam. I think that will help with this flooding situation. And sure enough, that within 12 hours of us opening that dam, the city was bone dry. I think that really helped CA. I think that cemented 
as far as General Tonsky was concerned, that cemented the value of CA in his mind about some of the things we can do in a phase three to impact actual maneuver of forces. So I think if you were to ask him to this day, you'd probably say they, they helped with the clearing just because they were able to help us with maneuver. Yes, sir. That's fascinating. I, I had never heard that story. It makes a lot of sense, though, that, that issue of mobility during the phase three operation. The CA has value throughout the whole operation, phases one through five. We have a role. We're not just phase four. Yes, sir. And I'm sure we could go on for a long time, especially talking about after the battle ended in phase four of reconstruction and getting the city back up to a healthy state. I'm sure you're very busy. I'd never heard that placing this civil affairs group as a main effort, but it makes a lot of sense in that next phase of the operation because the battle didn't end at their last fire shot. This was about getting the city of Fluja back up and running in a part of the broader government. I think we could go on for a long time to just do an episode on that, but this has been a fascinating conversation about really the, the role and the mission and the, the value of civil affairs from day zero through planning, through execution. It's been fascinating, sir. Yep. And what I'll say with phase four was there were things that we had to do that were temporary measures to get the city back up and running, like generate power generators and things like that. And then there was the more permanent reconstruction of the critical infrastructure that we had to do. So that was a lesson learned. We had some temporary things that we put in place while we had bigger reconstruction operations going on. So I'll just leave it with that as how we kind of did that part of it. That would be a whole nother probably episode. The amount of stuff that we rebuilt is quite extensive. And some of the things that there were some good news stories that happened in that part that were unbelievable, including employment of former uh, resistance fighters and stuff like that. Yes, sir. I think we should do it. And I've done a couple other separate, not podcasts, but separate episodes about rebuilding cities after post-conflict. And I think the rebuilding of Fallujah after the second battle would be an amazing next episode. Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'd be happy to talk about that. And also, there's some other things about the training that I think will lessons learned as far as I'm concerned. The mission planning and preparation, which I'd like to talk about maybe in a separate episode as well. Yes, sir. Let's do it. So I really appreciate your time. And this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully there were some lessons learned out there that you can put together with this and preserve it for somebody else who may have to do something like this again in the future. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.